So good morning, New City Church. My name is Brandon Dean. Uh, Those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastoral resident here. So it is a brand new year. And it's that time of year where we think about the year past. And, and many of us, we make resolutions. Or I, don't, I don't make resolutions anymore because I don't think I've ever had one that lasted even until Martin Luther King Day. So I just don't bother because they just make me feel like a failure. But it is hard on the new year, and I feel like this year ahead of us is like a blank slate, right? There's any problems that I caused last year, I haven't yet caused this year. (laughs) And so I want to think about those kind of things. And so I indulge in some self-reflection. I think about things that I might want to change. And I think that that's natural. We, We look and we say, you know, maybe this year will be the year where I can finally change that thing that I've been wanting to see change. So this morning we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Many of you know this passage well. It's the be doers of the word, not hearers only passage. And so you may not immediately think that it's about change, but I think as we go through it, you'll see that it is. And it's timely for this time of year. So if you guys want to like pull out all your apps, we'll read it together. And uh, then we'll go into it a little bit deeper. Let's go ahead and stand, though, while we read the word of the Lord. From uh, James 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So James is writing to believers. He's writing to... Jewish believers specifically, but the whole church would have received his letters. James might be the oldest book of the New Testament. So this would be the first time that the, the early church is receiving the, the word of God. And so we can imagine they might have been excited to get this, this new piece in God's revelation. They were probably reading it over and over and having discussions about it. It contains a lot of practical instruction, the book of James. So uh, right away we see that he's talking about producing righteousness and saving our souls. But like I said, he's writing to believers. So I believe that the salvation that he had in mind there is specifically 
our sanctification as believers. And sanctification is a part of the process of our salvation. So sanctification, that's kind of a big theological word, a $10 word. And I think that uh, there's some confusion about what it is in the church. So uh, let's just take a moment and kind of carefully define it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it like this. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God, and we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. So that's still pretty, pretty theological wording. I, I found a quote from J. Vernon McGee, and he explained our salvation as this. It's in three tenses. There's the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. I like that simple thing, but to make it even simpler, I have an illustration. This is a poster from 1967. This is a Volkswagen Squareback. It's a, it's a fine piece of German engineering. And for some reason, over the years, many of these have been crushed and destroyed. And so there's really, it's so cute. How could you do that? But they, they, there's not as many of them as there once was. So this picture kind of shows you like, well, this is what it was originally created to be. But it also kind of represents that a lot, a lot of these have been destroyed. And so this is kind of the past tense of, of my illustration. So the next picture, this is my 1967 Volkswagen Squareback, which we affectionately call Krusty. <laughs> and as you can see, Krusty's got some miles on him, and he has kind of little Mikhail Gorbachev spot on his hood, and, you know, but he runs, so, sort of. And someone saved him from being scrapped and crushed, and, and he's still kind of living out his purpose in life a little bit. Uh, I have a garage full of parts for him, though, and there's a lot of holes in him that I got to fill, and he's a restoration project in progress. Slow progress, because I'm funding it, but <laughs> this is kind of the present tense of salvation a, a work in progress. And then the last picture, uh, this is not my 1967 squareback, but somebody has one, and you can see they have fully restored it. And it's beautiful again, and it's back to what its original purpose was. And someday, Krusty could look like this, if only his savior was as good as mine. <laughs> So, I just want to be clear, in my example, we are all at the crusty stage <laughs> of restoration, so you can take that term and, and use it now. So, and some of us are more crusty than others, but we won't go there. So, at some point in the past, we became believers, and at some point in the future, we will die and go to be with Jesus and receive a perfect body and soul, but right now, presently... We live in this broken world, and we have imperfect bodies, and we continue to struggle with sin, while the Holy Spirit is working in us to conform us ever more and more into the image of Christ. And sanctification is simply 
the term we use to describe that. And sanctification, it's all about change and transformation. It's how we learn to resist temptation and overcome our human shortcomings. It's about how to live the victorious Christian life. It's kind of what people used to call religion. And in James 1, 26 and 27, we see that James talks about true and false religion. If anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. But religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to visit orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So right away we see true religion, right, is it involves serving others and not conforming to the ways of the world. And, and that makes me think of my life verse, which is Romans 12.2. And that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what Paul has in mind here is sanctification, the transformation of the Christian through the renewal of his mind through the word of God. And I believe that that's what James had in mind as well. So as the believer is conformed more and more into the image of his Savior, his natural response is to serve others as Jesus did. So when you see in the scripture that it says true religion involves visiting orphans and widows, this is not telling us what is necessary for us to be saved, but it's a description of what saved people look like. It's uh, descriptive, not proscriptive. In, in James 1, and 25, we see false religion, uh, on the other hand, involves having a deceived heart. James says, if you're a hearer of the word and not also a doer, you're like a man who looks into a mirror and then goes away and forgets what he looks like. This kind of man deceives himself. So, you know, mirrors are not very deceptive, are they? If I stand in front of my mirror and I ask it, do these pants make me look fat? It doesn't reflect back at me an image of myself from 10 years ago. Although I have an idea for an invention, but... (laughs) My mirror is really stubborn. It just shows me the way things really are. And that's what they do. So the word of God is kind of the same way. It shows us for who we really are. When we hear the word, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and we see our sin. We come face to face with it, and we also come face to face with God's plan for dealing with it. But if we see this in the word and then just ignore that prompting of the spirit, well, then we're deceiving ourselves. We're basically saying to God, That truth doesn't apply to me. I don't need that truth. I don't need to respond to you. Parents of teenagers maybe have experienced this. You you see your child, and they have their cell phone, and they're doing this. And we don't know what they're doing. They're texting or tumbling or YouTubing or whatever. And we say we want to have a conversation with them, so... We say, hey, child, I noticed you didn't clean your room. 
and they are like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I, I know, I know. Well, you need to clean your room. Yeah, I know, I know, I'll get to it. And they're not actually engaging with this because you see, they've heard it before. They know that we want them to clean their room and they know that they're not going to. And so what is the point of even having this conversation for the hundredth time, right? And they just kind of tune it out. Well, when we approach the word of God and we hear the Holy Spirit kind of nudging us and telling us that, that he's interested in doing something, we're kind of like an obstinate teenager when we don't respond. If we go to church on Sunday and hear the word of God and then do nothing, James says our religion is of no value. Uh, James said that we can think we're religious. So, you know, we go to church. That's what religious people do. And maybe we see some of the things that religious people do and we do some of those same things. And so we, we feel like we're religious. We're doing the things that Christians do. But if we're not heeding the prompting of the Spirit through the Word, then that's just false. And we're not going to grow, and we're not going to change, and we're not going to have that transformation that comes from the renewing of the mind that we so desperately need to change those things that need changing. In short, we're not really experiencing the freedom that God wants for us. And in fact, we're probably experiencing one of a couple of kinds of false sanctifications. The first kind of false sanctification we could have is, is this sanctification that's kind of based on works. It's based on our own human efforts. So this is that place where we see in us that there's things we don't like. And, and maybe with great motives, we want to change. But we're applying our own strength to it. We're trying to do it in our own power, and we're not submitting to the Word of God. And so we try, and we try again, and we use all of our human wisdom to bring about this change, and yet we just fail over and over and over again. Emmett Fox. Emmett Fox was a preacher who was beloved by Bill W., who founded the group Alcoholics Anonymous. And Emmett Fox once wrote, as soon as you resist mentally any undesirable or unwanted circumstance, you thereby endow it with more power, power which it will use against you, and you will have depleted your own resources to that exact extent. Heinrich Arnold said it differently. As long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. And the Apostle Paul said it in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
In the King James Version, they translate self-made religion as worship of the will. We're putting our worship on ourselves, saying, I can do this. I don't need God. When I was a new believer, I lived in this false works-based sanctification for a long while. I wanted to be a good Christian, but I had some horrible habits that had followed me over from my life before Christ. And every day I would sin. And every day I would promise God that it was the last time. I prayed about my addiction a lot. I asked God to remove it from me. See, I had Christian friends who had been delivered from various afflictions that they had. At Like a snap of the fingers, God took it away from them. But that wasn't my story. God wasn't doing that for me. And I doubted sometimes if I was even a Christian at all. But the truth was, I kind of knew what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do because when I would approach the word, I would hear from the Spirit that he, he wanted me to confess uh, to another human being what it was I was doing. But I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I was too afraid of what my wife would think, what my friends would think, what my church would think, what other Christians would think. And after a time, I had built up this Christian facade that I was like super Christian and I had it together and people came to me for advice. I told myself the church couldn't handle it if I fell from grace. You see, I was a hearer of God's truth. I, I knew what was necessary for my change, but I was too afraid to be a doer. The truth was... I didn't trust God enough to help me deal with the consequences of my choices. So I had all these rules and schemes and plans for how I was going to stop doing what I was doing and change into the person that God wanted me to be. But they were completely ineffective. And I got worse and worse. And eventually I got to a place where I was on the verge of losing my job, and I was making choices that would almost certainly lead to the end of my marriage. And at that time, God led me to a program called Celebrate Recovery, where I met people who had overcome addictive problems by becoming doers of the word. And gently, they led me through the steps of admitting my sin, all of it, and the truth about my problem, and submitting to God's plan for my life. And it was difficult, and it was painful for me and some of the people around me. But there was freedom in it. And the freedom that I experienced when I finally set down my will and decided to do it God's way made me wonder, why did I take so long to do this? So that's my story, but other people experience false sanctification in other ways. The, another type of false sanctification is waiting on God, and, and this false sanctification is this idea that 
God is going to do all the work of, of transforming me, so I don't need to do anything. I'll just wait for him to get around to it. Or perhaps some of us feel like God already has done all that he's going to do and that there's just nothing left to do. And this is a, another futile place where we can sit in confusion, thinking, why isn't God honoring the promises that I read in his word? Why is my Bible broken? Or worse, we live in a denial where we think that somehow our sinful life is okay with God, that we think God is, is just fine with where we are. And, and this is what James, I think, the whole point of his book is he's writing to the early church to understand this, that faith without works is dead, right? We have to be doers and not just hearers of the word. In, again, in verses 22 through 25, uh, we see this contrast uh, from the person who deceives himself. James shows us what uh, the doer, who is also a hearer, uh, what does he look like? Well, this doer, he looks into uh, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and then he perseveres. The doer is not deceived, but is in fact blessed. It's this neat image. I don't know if this is true, but I read this week that mirrors in that day were like polished brass, and they were typically laid flat on a table. And so if you looked in the mirror, you would kind of like bend over and look into it. It's kind of the same posture you might have if you were looking uh, at, at a book. The doer is not deceived, but he's blessed. With a false religion, we become enslaved either to our works or to our confusion about God. But real religion leads us to freedom. Jesus said in John eight thirty one and 32, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Apostle Paul also speaks about freedom in 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I'm talking about freedom for a purpose because there's always this risk when we talk about being the doers of the world. That we're going to make the mistake of becoming legalistic. Of falling into the trap of legalism. And when that happens, we're just adopting that false sanctification of works again. And that's why I think James was really careful when he mentions the law. He refers to it as the perfect law of liberty. The perfect law makes me think of Psalms 19. And in verse 7 and 11, uh, David, this is a song that he wrote. He sings, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Moreover, by them... Is your servant warned in keeping them? There is great reward. You see, without Jesus, the law convicts us of our sin and we become enslaved to it. 
But with Jesus, we're now free from that penalty of our sin. And we're motivated by a desire to please him and be like him. And the law just shows us a path for joyful obedience. So looking at James 1, 19 through 21, if we know that we're going to find freedom when we go to the Word and we listen to the Spirit, then we shouldn't be hesitant to go to the Word where we can find that renewing of our mind that leads to our transformational sanctification. James wants us to be quick to hear the Word, to have an eagerness for it. We live in a day where it's easy to hear the Word. Between YouTube and smartphones and the internet and churches on every corner, we, we could literally hear the Word 24-7. But despite our eagerness to hear the Word, James cautions us to treat it carefully because the Word is powerful. And he says we should be slow to speak the Word And you might say, well, wait, isn't speaking the word a good thing? Don't we want to share the gospel with as many people as possible? Don't we want to tell the story of what God has done in our lives and what his plan is for their life? And my answer to you is absolutely yes. But not before you understand it. Not before you know what you're talking about. Not before you have heeded to the Holy Spirit and what they are trying to show you. I think all too often we might read whatever the current popular book is or, or we hear a concept of theology or we read half a book. I'm really good at reading half of books. And, and we get all excited about something and then we start telling others about it in kind of an authoritative way. And yet we, we don't even fully understand it yet. And, and I don't think it's wrong to have conversations But I think what James is saying to us is, let's be careful with how we treat the word. Let's be slow to speak it and make sure we know what we're saying. They say it's better to remain silent and have people wonder if you're ignorant than to speak and remove all doubt. But I think nothing distracts us more from hearing the truth of God than when we approach it with unresolved bitterness and resentment. Anger and the word of God do not belong together. They don't mix. And I think that when we approach the scripture in an angry way, horrible things happen. We try to punish people or shame people or get them to behave the way we want them to behave by angrily thumping our Bible, beating them with it, and saying, change. I think most of us know someone, or some of us are people, who have experienced this, where somebody has angrily used the Word of God as a bludgeoning tool in their life. James points out, That man's anger cannot produce the righteousness of God. It's not effective. We're not going to bring about change in others through our anger. We can't argue or bully someone into becoming a believer. 
and nor can we bring about the change and sanctification we want to see in believers' lives by using the Bible as a weapon. Righteousness comes from God alone. And so James tells us how we're, we're supposed to receive the word, and that is meekly. He says, put aside filth and wickedness, and those, that's those things that make us want to hesitate to go to the word. And there's those things that make us pridefully want to speak the word before we understand it. They're the things that make us think maybe we could use the Bible to manipulate others. We've got to set aside our agenda and our impure motives and just submit and meekly receive it from the Holy Spirit and see what it is he wants to show us. And if, you know, we have unrepentant sin, maybe we want to deal with that before we enter in. He says that the word is implanted and that it's able to save our souls. The word implanted is a little unusual because it's the only time in all of Scripture that we see this particular word. And it's just a farming term. It's an agricultural word. It, it, it brings up the image of, of either planting or engrafting something. And so it makes me think of, of a farmer who wants to grow healthy crops so, so what does a farmer do? Well, he, he tends to the soil and he makes sure that it's rich and healthy and he makes sure there's plenty of water. And then he takes seed and he plants the seed at the right time. And he knows that if he does these things, then healthy crops grow. But what does the farmer do to make that seed sprout? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. He does absolutely nothing. He has no idea how that happens or how to make it happen in his own strength. All he can do is prepare for it and then let the natural forces of nature that God established bring about the growth. And that's how the word of God is with us. We can place ourselves before God and, and do so in a way where we're ready but only he can do that transformational work of our sanctification. So, there's one more verse I want to bring up as I close this out, or land the plane, as Ryan would say. This verse is 1 Timothy 4.7. It tells us, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. So, as we encounter the word of truth, that's, that's Jesus Christ, the word of truth. We're going to see that he lived his life in a very intentional way. See, he, he and his apostles had uh, various regular practices. It was a way of life, and it's a, it's a good example for us. And I think that as we become open to this idea of approaching the word and doing what we encounter, we're, we're going to have more and more opportunities to notice these practices in the lives of, of the examples set for us. And in our journey of transformation, uh, it's a good idea perhaps that we 
would incorporate some of these practices into our own spiritual life. After all, the goal is to become more and more in the image of Christ. And so we want to further that in every way that we can. And so there's a, there's a resource that we wanted to recommend, and it's called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And it's written by Donald Whitney. And he, in this book, he lists and has a discussion about many of these practices that we see in the life of Jesus and the apostles. And you'll see them up there on the screen. I, what I don't want you to do is look at this list of things and say, oh, there's another list of things that I'm not any good at, or there's another list of things that I'll never fit into my busy schedule, or, oh, that looks scary. I, I want to be clear, these are not the requirements of being a Christian, and they're not even a descriptor of what being a good Christian is. But these are excellent practices. These are things that it, if you take these and do them well and incorporate them into your spiritual life, they will allow the Holy Spirit to produce transformation. And so I think they're worthwhile to consider. They'll cause us to grow in godliness. So I do recommend this book. It's a good book, and you know, but I'm not saying like your your homework tonight is to go buy this book. You can buy it if you want to. I think it's great. But my suggestion is maybe take a moment and just kind of look at this list and 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 ask yourself a question. Think about think about last year and think about your own spiritual life, your own quiet times with the Lord, and look at this list and just Ask yourself the question, do I have room to grow? Is there, is there a way I could go deeper? Maybe ask yourself the question, do any of these scare you a little bit? Are they, are they kind of unsettling? Are, you've, when you see some of these, do you think, I, I could never do that? And then maybe just pray and say, Jesus did these things. I want to know how I can let go of that fear. Maybe you look at some of them and you don't even know what they are. Or you have an idea, but you're just not sure what I'm talking about. Maybe write, write those down. Maybe have a conversation with a discipleship group leader or a missional community friend or just someone you know who is spiritual. Maybe they don't know any more than you do, but you can figure it out together. I think if you Google these, you're going to find a lot of stuff written about them, some good, some bad. That's how the Internet works. But I hope that you'll consider as we enter in, as we hear the Word of God spoken, as, as maybe even now you hear the Holy Spirit nudging you a little bit, I I pray that we'll find in us that courage to be doers and not hearers only. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a great example to us. We thank you that even though we're in the crusty stage 
of restoration that uh, you are interested in each and every one of us in transforming our lives into conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And I pray that as we face those issues in our lives that need changing, that we will feel your freedom, that we will feel that hope that relying on you brings. And I pray that you'll enable us to step out in faith and be doers of your word. Lord, we pray that as we are transformed through the renewing of our mind, that uh, those around us will see the change in us and that we'll be excited to share with others uh, what you're doing in our lives. And I pray that you'll bring not only transformation to us individually, but also as the family of God here at New City Church and in Lawrenceville and in Georgia and throughout the world. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.